Welcome back, everyone. So here's our outline for today. We're going to just continue talking about interventions. So I did, I was thinking a little bit about a couple of the things we talked about last week that I just wanted to give a little, a little more, um, a little more to. I mentioned um, that Briere talked about the therapeutic window. And I mentioned that I have thought about a sandwich metaphor. <laughs> so I found pictures to illustrate these ideas of windows and sandwiches. Um, so just, and I think it's worth just going over again because when we're doing grief therapy, um, we wanna help a client talk about their feelings and express their feelings, especially their feelings that have gotten, have not, have gone unexpressed, that have been repressed. Um, and yet we, I know for myself as a therapist, I like to get people to talk about their feelings and sometimes it's too much. And some, I know some clinicians that I have supervised are afraid of getting their clients to talk about feelings because they don't want to bring hurt pain. They, 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 they don't want to cause, cause pain to the client. And we don't sometimes don't ask enough about the painful feelings. But the idea is using your clinical judgment to help a client talk about painful feelings in uh, um, enough to help them therapeutically without overwhelming them, without triggering um, kind of catastrophic reactions or exacerbations of their mental illness. So Breer talks about the therapeutic window. We want to get, I think elsewhere he talks about helping them talk about just a little with getting to the level where it's a little bit uncomfortable. So we, we probe enough to, to help a person leave their complete comfort zone of not feeling painful feelings, but not so much that it kind of goes out of this window. And I like the metaphor of a sandwich. I think I mentioned this, but just, just thinking about how much in a, in a therapy session, let's say you have a 45, 50 minute therapy session, you might talk about, you know, how they've been doing some practical things for a while. Then you may lead into helping them talk about the pain of the grief. And then you may talk about how they're feeling now, how they're going to cope, what kind of coping skills they're going to use. So there's like the bread on the beginning of the session and the end of the session in the middle, there's either a skinny little bit of meat, or there might be a big, big chunky corned beef sandwich full of meat, um, you know, and, and depending on the client, they can talk more or less about the painful feelings. Um, and another thing I think Briere says is you want to have the, 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 part, the part where you're really processing the painful emotions right before the middle of the session. So right around the middle or a little before the middle is where the meat of the session will be. I know sometimes we end up with the meat of the session at the end of the session. And I, I think clinically we wanna really work towards some lead in, some real processing of deep, difficult emotions and then some lead out um, rather than, sometimes we don't kind of get to the emotion until the very end, which I think can leave the client feeling kind of raw. So. I think those metaphors can be helpful. Um, 
Also, I know I mentioned the feeling chart and the feeling wheel, and I think I kind of went over it a little bit fast. And I just wanted to say a little more that how I use either this feeling chart or I'm going to just show another picture of the feeling wheel. Um, because I, I do think I went over it a little bit fast and I, I actually heard a talk um, just yesterday about this and it kind of made a little more sense to me why there are so many, so many words. It can look overwhelming, but really you, you want to start with asking the client to look at this, um, the very middle part of the seven feelings that are in the middle happy, surprised, bad, fearful, angry, disgusted, sad, and help them to identify, you know, how they're feeling or how they felt about when the, the loss happened. And then you can help them get a little more um, granular by if they felt, let's say they said they said felt sad, you could help them say, okay, well, look at these other words that are in the pale blue would you say it's a little more lonely, vulnerable, despair, guilty, depressed, hurt? And then they could go out to the outer layer. Not all people will think the feelings are exactly laid out like this. This is, you know, an approximate, but you can really help a client both identify the broad feeling and then go to a regular detailed level of, of identifying how they felt with time over a few sessions or something. So I think these can um, be helpful. So anticipated losses. So it, it, it's a little hard for me to address just in abstract, but uh, for example, I, I suppose if we take the example of you ha have a family member who has a cancer diagnosis and was given a certain length of prognosis of, of time to live, let's say three months or one year, and the person is getting sicker and sicker, and you can tell someone's declining and you don't know when the person will die, but you know it's it's coming, it's uh, clear. Um, it, it, there's a lot of complication. I do think many, most people do kind of have some anticipatory loss, some people more than others. If your client has something that you think is an anticipated loss, I would bring up the fact that they may be in, in anticipatory grieving, but I wouldn't push it. Some people in a situation like that aren't really grieving ahead of time, and some are. And that would be where you would maybe probe a little bit about it and then take your cues from them, whether they feel like they are grieving or not. Not, but it, 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 it's hard because it isn't a clear sort of resolution to leave toward you're dead yet. Or, I mean, this happens with a, a course of dementia when a loved one has a progressive dementia and you can see a person just kind of gradually declining. There are little losses along the way, um, but it's hard because I think people feel guilty for grieving ahead of time. And then, so that guilt would be another thing to help your client to talk about. Um, so the, those are just a few thoughts I have about anticipatory losses. So um, just kind of a reminder of where we were last week. I was kind of talking about William Warden's four tasks of normal grieving and what can get in the way and therefore what we might as therapists 
do to help our clients that are not progressing through um, different aspects or these different tasks of normal grieving. So we talked a little bit about the place of denial and shock in not quite yet accepting that the reality of the loss has occurred and how that can, you know, if that lasts over a long period of time, that can leave a person kind of in a mummified state where the loss is kind of mummified and, and the person hasn't processed any of the feelings of grief. And therefore often the, the feelings pop up in other ways. And the client I was describing to you, she was very, very depressed. She hadn't processed her feelings of the loss of her husband. She hadn't gone through any of his things. She had just moved and kind of closed the door and um, it really contributed to a serious depression. Um, and then we talked mostly a lot, a lot about experiencing the pain of grief. And that again, I think that's being the, the, the bulk of what we do in grief therapy is helping a person experience all the range of feelings that go with grief, the pain, as well as, you know, sometimes the relief and freedom. Um, so we're gonna come back to techniques that can help you in task number two, but I just kinda wanna now go through the third and fourth aspects where people get can get stuck and what we might do to help them. So <clears throat> in the third task, the task for the grieving person is to adjust to life without the person or thing or ability which was lost. So um, when, when people, clients, us, loved ones um, don't adjust and they kind of stay helpless, that can turn into, you know, the problems for their life. It can turn into mental illness and or it can turn into life kind of life functioning kinds of problems. So, um, you know, one example of this would be a, a woman who, whose husband died and let's say she was quite dependent on him for handling the social aspect of their life. Let's say he was the one that would make plans. He was the one that would you know, drive to go places. He was the one that would um, call people up and say, come on over or let's go out or things like that. And so she um, was so very quite dependent on him for doing that. And she hasn't learned to do that herself. Um, or a child who, I know in our clinic, we have a number of clients who kind of were very quite close, but also dependent on their mom and dad for help. And these sometimes are clients that have had some kind of developmental delay or were considered to by their family. And then they've been so dependent on their parents that as their parents age and die, they are feel kind of helpless to even navigate the world. Um, so our task here, really is to help a client be brave and try out new skills and new things um, and learn, learn new skills. I think this, this task can also be related to unresolved what, um, issues and feelings from the previous task of processing the pain. Sometimes 
a person will remain in a helpless state, not because they can't or even won't um, learn the new skill, but it's a way of staying connected. And so sometimes processing, when a person isn't adjusting to life without what was the, the person or thing that was lost, we need to go back to step two and help them grieve and process the pain of the loss. It's, that is often the, the cause of not adjusting to life. Sometimes it's just plain a lack of skills and then it's probably a little easier to address in therapy. Um, okay. So, and then according to um, Warden, he would say that the fourth task of normal grieving is reinvesting in new relationships or activities rather than not loving, not attaching. Um, I would guess, you know, I, I showed a video of Robert Niemeyer and I'm gonna show another short video of him again this today. Um, I would think Re Niemeyer would probably say it's not reinvesting, it's investing in new relationships. Um, so I, I think there's maybe a little more um, traditional approach to grief therapy, which I think Warden takes, the idea is you have closure to the loss and then you reinvest your attachment to something new. Whereas Niemeyer and um, I think David Kessler, some of the more currently writing grief experts wouldn't say you, re you get closure and then you reinvest. They would say you stay invested in the person that was lost, or let's say this can be applied to other things other than people, but you stay invested, but you, you're invested in a new way. And we're gonna talk about that a little more today. Um, and then you also invest in new relationships, um, but there'd be some difference in, in opinion among grief experts about whether you actually get closure, resolution, and then reinvest, or if you, you stay invested, but you shift how you're invested in the lost relationship. Um, you know, uh, uh, people that don't go into processing stage four or task, not a stage, task four, might look like um, someone who says, well, if I really process my grief about losing my son, it will feel like I'm disloyal. It will mean that I didn't really honor his his importance to me or the importance of him. And so people will sometimes not, I mean, and, and I, I think we see this in our clients, not infrequently where they, ref, not refuse, but they don't attach in new relationships because it, it, it feels like it will invalidate the loving relationship or the attachment they had to the person that died. And I think this is something else we can help them talk about. Um, you know, you can still honor your relationship as father to son and also, you know, get involved in some other activities where you develop other relationships and helping them to, to talk through the fears of being disloyal. Um, so as I just kind of alluded to, <clears throat> one of the things that I think um, 
I heard first from Robert Niemeyer, and recently I've heard more from other people, but maybe because he put this forward, I don't know, um, is the goal of grief therapy is to facilitate, or one of the goals is to facilitate an internalized sense of attachment security with newly constructed meaning. So again, not trying to reach closure or letting go, but he would say rather than letting go of the lost person, object, thing, experience, it's to, he says to say hello again, to say hello in a different way. Um, so I have, I'm going to show this video, but I want to, I had a, um, yeah, I want to go over this example, then I'll come back up to the video. But here um, is an example of a client of mine who um, was grieving her mother's very untimely death. So her mother died, her mother was obviously older than she was, um, and she was a, kind of you know, I don't know, in her 60s or something, but died from a, an accident, not from an aging or from an illness. And she was very close to her mother. And she talked about, you know, she talked about what she missed about her mother. She talked about how much she missed about her mother. And, you know, we, we talked about that for a while, uh, some sessions, um, but not only talking about what she missed, but after she had expressed quite a bit of what she missed, I helped her to talk about what she still had of her mother. Um, and what I meant by that wasn't things that she had of her mother's, although that would be something to talk about, but I talked about the what, what meaning she has internalized, what qualities, what... Um, you know, what asked, what she learned from her mother, what her mother has left with her, what, what she, when, when she thinks about her mother, what does she have internally from her mother? Um, so some of what we talked about is that she really learned to have compassion for other people because of what her mother gave to her and modeled for her. She really learned and developed a value of being honest because her mother was very, very honest. Um, and then even more concretely, she loves to garden and she just absorbed that from her mother. It's things that she did together. So I, I guess I was encouraging her in this kind of talk that when she gardens, rather while she misses her mother when she gardens, also she could kind of consider that she is connected with her mother because she's gardening, while she's gardening. That it's not just that she misses her mother, which is true, but also that there she is kind of being with her mother inside of her as she does the gardening. Um, so that is just sort of one example of saying hello again, rather than goodbye. And I think that's a significant difference in how we might do grief therapy. Um, and also in addition to, processing this in therapy, I encouraged her to write, you know, to kind of journal about like, what, what do you have of your mother that you have is become part of who you are? Um, okay, so I want to show this video. 
if I have lost my child, for example, to a childhood cancer, the goal of my grieving is not to let go and relinquish that relationship, to withdraw emotional energy from that, the process that Freud called decathexis, in order to invest in another relationship. The goal is to find a sustainable way of continuing a bond rather than separating it. Bond is verbinding. Okay. So in this then, we move toward a kind of acknowledgement of the finality of death, not just intellectually, right? It is not simply a robotic kind of emotionless recognition. It is a full-bodied, emotional acknowledgement of the reality of the loss that is not, does not require a kind of tense avoidance of that reality. The reality seeps into us. It informs us. It shapes us. But it shapes us without that kind of terrible fear that leads to avoidance. We continue to experience what we would call bittersweet emotions. Right? Maybe they begin as a kind of deep despair and a kind of angst, right? and we feel just reduced by them. But we find ways then of staying in the same affective range or zone, but carrying those emotions more lightly. So perhaps despair becomes a kind of nostalgia a kind of sweet remembrance accompanied by a gentle tear instead of deeply racking sobs of pain. We change our mental representation of the deceased or that kind of role or status that we once had. Right? In the case of uh, the loss of a loved one, right? we're looking for ways of maybe no longer can we sit down and have right, breakfast with our loved one each day and set the table for two. Right? Now, from the point of her death forward, I'm setting the table only for one. Because I will be having breakfast each day from this point forward with her very present absence, the chair that calls her forth, but never palpably, never physically, never substantially enough. Eternity will not return her in this physical form to me. Coming to find peace with that and even appreciation for the way in which she is with me now is part of the process of integrating loss. We construct a coherent narrative of the loss. And this is true with reference to all fundamental life transitions, especially of a traumatizing kind. That is to say, by seeking a coherent narrative, we are not just looking for a happy story a kind of what in English we might call positive reframing, right? Like putting a big yellow happy face sticker over the mask of grief, right? 
It's not that kind of story we're seeking to tell. Mostly in the work that I do, I'm listening for the implicit need that the person has. I'm asking myself at each moment, what does this person need deeply at a level that is expressed in their language, but often is also there beneath their language, right? I can see Trisha's terrible need for time out from this grief that is killing her. But I can also respect the great importance of maintaining access to that grief. And then I ask myself, in the presence of this need, is she ready for this step? In session one and two, the answer was not yet. Not yet. The grief just needs a voice. No attempt to downregulate it, put it away. Let's just give it the space it desires. But by session three, there was more of a sense of readiness. So where Grief Street crosses Readiness Boulevard, if you can find yourself at that intersection, you can explore a lot of different directions of movement. And so at each point in therapy, in coaching, I'm listening for those two things to come together. And then a simple suggestion like this one, or like the idea of not having to grieve for her daughter 24-7 uh, could be accepted very readily. And the tragedy of human life is that we are wired for attachment in a world of impermanence. As the Buddhists remind us, all things, all people, all projects, all words will rise up and fall away. We need to find some way of integrating that reality, not just getting over it. Because there's no getting over it. There's only getting through it and preparing ourselves for the next experience in the transition cycle, the next welcome, the next investment, the next growing attachment, intimacy, the inevitable loss, grief, meaning reconstruction that prepares us then for the next encounter. Right? This is the nature of life as they have beautifully laid out in, the, in his recent book. I mean, just, just I, I guess I want to highlight, he talked about quite a few different things in that six minutes, but um, I, I guess the point I wanted just to reiterate or emphasize is he said um, the point, the goal is to continue a bond, not separating it. And he said, um, leading to an appreciation for the way she is with me now. What is the way he or she is with you now? And I have brought, since I kind of learned this a few years ago, I have brought this up much more in my therapy with clients. And pretty much everybody, I mean, across for most of the clients that I brought that up with have like gotten a, a, a different sense, like a, just like a slight lightening of like, oh, I can really think about that she's still here with me rather than that she's gone. Um, so I, I find that concept really helpful. So here is, you know, kind of some of the, some of the tools so Robert Niemeyer, again, he's written a lot. You can find some of his writing just by Googling and looking at what he's got online. Um, I've referenced a few different books by him, um, but it, it can really help to have tools. And, you know, we've 
um, pretty sure we've talked in the last couple weeks. Now I'm forgetting if this has been said, but but doing role play. Well, so different kinds of role plays are gestalt kind of exercises or the empty chair or those kinds of things I think can be really helpful where we enact, ex we enact some interactions um, between the client and the deceased person or the thing, or, I mean, this can, again can be done by, by personifying if a person, you know, has had a stroke and their, their, their part of their body isn't working, you can personify that part of the body um, or if a person has had to leave home, um, oh, you know, I, I, I was listening to another talk podcast recently about immigrate immigrants and immigration and homesickness and the loss of home. Um, and I think many, many of, I know clients we work with, and I imagine you work with are immigrants and, um, or migrants maybe from other parts of the country of our, this country. Um, but many immigrants from other countries where the loss is the loss of a home or loss of a home country. Um, and so anyway, this, these, all these ideas that we're talking about can be um, worked on with various kinds of losses, which I, I know we've been talking about that. But I just wanted to say that a little more clearly. But here are some things you can do is have the, your client write a letter to the person they have lost or the place they have lost or the part of their physical functioning they have lost. Um, and, and you can encourage the client to express their thoughts and feelings about the person that's gone. You can have them write with the intention of saying hello again, rather than a final goodbye. You want to, so, so, okay, so this, this is the, the exercise of kind of saying hello again. So this, this all flows together. You want to encourage the client to speak deeply from the heart. A lot of, as I've been saying, and I, I, it just seems really important to keep kind of coming back to, a lot of times client will talk intellectually about things. And I think a big part of our job as therapists is to help them speak deeply from their heart. Um, considering what the other person has given you. Um, so thinking about values, um, even looks, you know, like I have the nose, my dad gave me this nose, or I got have my mom's eyes or um, that kind of thing, or values or skills and abilities or things they've taught you to do. Um, it could be things like my mom gave me her pearl necklace or something, but I, I'm not sure if the things carry, they may carry meaning, um, but then you wanna really get to the meaning and the value behind that. Um, <clears throat> And you want to encourage the client to express, address what has been unspoken. What I always wanted to tell you is, and I think that can be a really helpful question to have a client answer in verbally in therapy or in writing or in an enactment, a role play enactment. What I've always wanted to tell you is, because that's often a piece of what gets people hung up in um protracted grief is there's all this unsaid stuff um or a question i always wanted to ask you was 
And then you can encourage, and this part I might do in the therapy rather, rather than outside the therapy as homework, but consider having them draft a response in the words of the other. What do you think your mother or your son or your home would say to you? What would they say back? So if you have, if the client has said, I always wanted to tell you that I'm sorry, I, the last time I talked to you, I was so blaming. And then you might have them consider, well, what do you think the other person would say? And then what would you say back and how would you feel? Or you might want to say one question I always wanted to ask you was, why didn't you ever say you loved me? And then you might consider having them draft, what, what do you think? What do you think he would say to that? And then process the feelings of what, what they say to that. So this could be done at, in writing, encouraging them to write like in a journal or letters. Um, you could also do all of this enacting the dialogue with the deceased. Um, there are different ways to do enactments. Um, the therapist can play the deceased person or the deceased person could be an empty chair that the client is imagining, or you could have the client kind of playing both sides, like having two chairs and getting up and changing chairs. Um, all those different ways will have somewhat different impacts. So again, we're helping the client consider how the lost person or the lost thing impacted them or imprinted. So that's kind of another word. How did it how did your mom imprint on you? Um, both positive and negative, considering mannerisms, way of speaking, hobbies, feelings, personality, values, etc. Um, and here are some other things that can help a client to process some of their feelings. Um, again, coming from some strategies from Niemeyer. How and when do you feel close to so-and-so now? What were their moments of greatness in life? What advice would he or she have for you about how to handle this? What would they say about how you're handling your grief? What would they hope for for you now and in the future? And who can help you keep their stories alive? Again, kind of thinking about how you're continuing to be related to this person, not how you're saying goodbye. Um, so I, I wanna just do a little exercise with you. This You're not gonna have to share this with anyone. This is just personal. Um, so if you want, you could pull out a piece of paper and a writing utensil, or if you don't own paper, <laughs> if you're a paperless person and you wanna, take a couple notes on your device. Um, and I'm just going to ask you to think this through for yourself. Again, we're not going to talk about this in any groups or anything. So, you know, handle it how you want to. But go ahead and think about something you have lost or somebody. Um, a person who has died or moved away or a uh, 
a place you have lost. Um, if you really don't, really, really don't want to do that, you could think about a client you're working with um, who has had a loss. So just take, first of all, go ahead and take um, 15 seconds to think of a loss that we're going to kind of process a little bit. And then I'm going to have you write the beginning of a letter to this thing, this ability, this person, with the idea of saying hello again. And jot down a couple of things that you, you know, again, or if you want to role play your client, gained or learned or internalized from that person. So I'm going to give you just, I don't know, two or three minutes to um, write hello again, what I learned from you, or what I've internalized from you, or what I've gained from you. So it just kind of can give you the idea of, of a way you could walk a client through that. Um, feel free to follow that up with that after the class if you want to take that a little further. Um, I was going to move these two slides, but I'll go ahead and go over these. Um, I, I kind of just in looking at research on grief counseling, it's interesting how grief counseling seems to have a lot of cachet, a lot of popular um, following, but the research is not that strong on how that grief counseling really necessarily is any better that, that people that go through grief counseling don't necessarily have better outcomes than people that do or don't. Um, it has been found to be more effective when it's targeted for people who are showing difficulty adapting to the loss rather than being for all people who are grieving. So I think I mentioned this in the first session. I have come to, when someone says, especially if, if it's a referral from a family member saying, oh, my dad just died, my mom needs grief therapy or something like that. Um, I sort of really tend to say, well, you know, if your mom really wants it, okay, sure. But I don't think we should push this right now. Let's see how she does um, and see if she kind of goes through a, sort of an average normal sort of processing, you know, going through denial and shock, going through sadness, going through bargaining, going through anger, going through different parts. And, you know, really, I think grieving with loved ones in the local community, talking about the grief with family, neighbors, church members or whatever, temple members, so on, um, is probably better. I don't know that it's bad to be in grief counseling, but I don't know that it's necessary for all people. But back when we talked about the research in the first session, there is a small percentage of people that are um, do have trouble. And those people that maybe had mental illness before might really benefit from it. Or after a chunk of time, maybe six months or so, if a person is still really showing signs of major depression or is showing signs of suicidality or show, I mean, actually any 
it's, it's, it's probably never really normal to show the signs of suicidality. So if there's a lot of self-hatred, self-blame, even from the beginning, those are the kind of people where I think it would be useful to have uh, therapy. Um, some researchers have found that bereavement counseling with individuals who sought counseling between six months and two years after the loss of a family member or friend didn't differ from those who took medication, but did not have counseling. So, um, so people that took medication versus having counseling weren't, weren't any different. However, several months later after treatment, those who had counseling had fewer symptoms than those who took medication without counseling. So for people that sought counseling themselves a little bit after the loss, that there was some better outcome than those people that just took medication. So this is just a little bit of the research, which is it's just not, it's not super strong for grief counseling. Nonetheless, I think we're being asked to provide it more and more. And I don't think it, it doesn't hurt, um, but I think it is especially important for being targeted to the people that are, are having trouble progressing through the tasks of mourning or stages or phases of mourning. So another important part of grief therapy will be helping, and this is related to the subject of, of how have you internalized the person that's lost or the thing. It's related, but a little um, other in that David Kessler, who I mentioned, I think last week, um, who worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross a little bit later in her life, um, he said like the sixth phase of, of grief therapy is finding meaning. And so I wanna spend a little bit of time talking about how do we help our clients find meaning? Tricky to help someone else find meaning because it can sound like, what's the silver lining? You know, what's the good thing that happened because he died, you know, it's like, ugh. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, I think it's really an important part of grief therapy. So I'm not quite sure how, I mean, I, I do think the last exercise and, and talking about, well, what did, this is one way of helping them to find meaning is what did you, have you internalized from that person? What have you gained from that person? How do you want to stay connected to the memory of their person? Um, that's one way to help find meaning. I don't think that's the only way. I think we want to kind of think about ways of helping people find meaning. So, you know, one of the things we can do is kind of help find name meaningful moments. What are meaningful moments and meaningful memories you have of the lost person, place, or thing. Um, we're naming the pain can can help. You know, part of the meaning could be learning to live with pain, learning to live with absence. At, towards the end of the little video with Robert Neumeier just now, the second one from today, he said, um, he said, we have. He, he was kind of talking about how we go through loss and then we are prepared for further loss. So part of the meaning can be learning to live with loss, learning to be prepared for future losses. As he mentioned, 
you know, that losses keep happening in our lives. And, you know, there are, I think as, as life goes on and we get older, we have more losses. And so part of the meaning could be learning to, to cope with loss. Um, I think helping to find meaning, I think as we help them talk about their pain, we can help them look for um, meaning. In love never dies. Another option for how to consider helping them find meaning is helping them find meaning with when there's been losses where there was a significant sense of love involved, um, that we can help them find that how love continues to be present. But I do think we can't we can't imply this stuff for our, our clients. We have to help them find it for themselves. Um, I don't know how many of you have experienced when someone says to you, oh, but you have their memories or, oh, but what's the silver lining? It can just like be, shut up. You know, I mean, it, it, telling your client any of this doesn't really work, but helping them to, to find their own meaning, I think is really important can be. So some of the ideas of meaning here are helping the client make new meaning of the relationship with the person that's lost. We've just talked about that. Of the life, making new meaning of the life here, your client is going to be living. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So he's gone and, and it's a huge loss and your life is nothing like what it used to be. What is the meaning of your life that you're going to live now, that you are living right now? And one of the ways to help them do that is to help them, help the client identify what they value, um, not just what they feel, but what they value. Like what's important to you in life? What do you really value? So do you value living honestly? I mean, and I wouldn't necessarily ask them these questions. I really try to elicit for that from them. Although if they come up with nothing, you might want to offer some possibilities. But I think you value family. It seems like family relationships you value or you value doing good in the world or you value adventure or you value excitement or you value, what, what do you value? And helping them, the person see separate from or internalized from either one, the lost thing or person, what, what do they value now? And how does that give meaning to their current life? Um, what's the place of their self themselves in the world now, given that loss? You know, what is your place? Okay, you're, you're very alone. And, and what kind of place do you want to have in this world? And how can you know we work together to help you have that place? Um, and then there's meaning of the loss itself, and that might have to do with some of the feelings and some of the pain um, that we we internalize. And Nehemiah said in his video, the bittersweet emotions that might be part of, you know, living with the pain that might be part of your meaning now. And you know, developing meaning is very much intertwined with feeling the feelings of the loss. And you know, so much of what our therapy is about is helping clients tolerate feelings of loss. People are very scared of feeling the feelings of loss often. And that gets in the way of helping meaning to emerge. So 
in the course of grief therapy, you know, getting to tolerating the feelings, the painful feelings, meaning will kind of more likely emerge later. It's a, it's a later step in the grief, in the grief, grieving. Yeah, okay, so my second bullet point is kind of obvious, but it's so, it makes it hard for us to help our clients grieve when everyone around and the media is all about things and happiness and trying to be happy. So that just makes it kind of hard. We are going to have a little breakout groups now. So we're gonna break out into groups of about five people um, and this will go on for about 10 minutes. Think of an item that is meaningful to you in that it reminds you of a person or a place or experience. For example, so you, you could take the thing you were thinking about a few minutes ago in the individual exercise or something else, but think of an item, a thing that reminds you of a person or a place or experience that you have said good, that you that is not in your life anymore. A photo, a souvenir, a thing, piece of jewelry, a recipe, a place, a food, um, and describe the meaningfulness of it to the group. What does this thing mean to you? What does it remind you of? How is the remembered person or experience or thing part of you? So this is the idea of sort of something you could do with a client of to help find meaning, you could start by getting a thing, that the kind of a little more concrete thing that helps you to kind of talk through what does this thing mean to you and what is how does it remind you of the place or person or thing that's lost all right um so we'll come back in 10 minutes okay so another kind of changing the subject not changing the whole subject but kind of talking about another um area of grief that can be challenging so um i i think sometimes I think working through guilt, when a client feels guilt, it can be it really, I, I mean, this is one thing I have found can be difficult to help a client work through. And um, it can come up with all kinds of losses. But for example, if, so, if a loved one suicided, there's often grief. With the death of a child, whether or not it seems reasonable to us as a therapist, there is often a sense of guilt. Um, when someone has chosen a family member, a family or a family member has, has, made, help, has made the choice to withdraw life support. Um, when a person has been not responsible, when they have had a history of doing one thing or more than one thing in the lives of somebody that died that was not responsible. For instance, you know, we have clients that have, you know, had lives of, of serious substance abuse and that impacted the way their children grew up or the way they interacted or didn't interact with their parents or siblings, et cetera. So those are some kind of obvious times people feel guilt, but people can feel guilt for something that seems like really, you feel guilty for doing that, you know, it's like hard to understand, but all the guilt just can get very intractable. So here are just some thoughts, um, some things to think about 
that might help you to work, help the client to work through guilt. Um, so one, so here's some, re, some reasons to think about, and then we'll talk about strategies. So one of the reasons someone might just hold on to, hold on, I don't think they hold on to it on, on purpose, but guilt may hang around, hang, hang on to them, would be they have a developmental history of being blamed. So they may feel like, oh, I, you know, my mom had a DNR. She didn't want to be resuscitated. She didn't want life's, you know, heroic measures made. But at the end of her life, the doctors, you know, I didn't stop the doctors from, or, or towards the end, I didn't stop the doctors from intubating her or something. And then she, she lived in pain for three more weeks, something like that, where there's very little, there's very little that the person did, but they feel incredibly guilty. It may be that it was really from that non-action, but it may be that they grew up in a, in a, in a very blaming home and they have internalized a sense that they're to blame for everything because as a little child, they kept getting blamed and blamed and blamed. So sometimes working through that kind of guilt means having to go and really process developmental issues. It really is much, much, not so much, not really about the recent loss or the more recent loss, but it's about a loss of being um, raised in a way of feeling good about your own their own actions. So that can take time to get to and to understand. And then that can take even more therapeutic time to kind of try to process a sense of just generally feeling blamed for anything and everything. Another reason people can get stuck in guilt is they acted irresponsibly. They, um, let's say they their child committed suicide and it may in part be that that the parent was actively using substances when the child was growing up and was, was hurtful to the child, was abusive. Um, it's really important when someone feels guilt to really explore what they feel guilty about and help expose things that they actually may have done that were irresponsible um, and they feel guilty about. And what we do to help them with that is different than when what they feel that they did wrong, they really didn't have control of, or they had very little um, agency over. Um, when someone has, you know, like we probably have clients who have killed people. Um, we don't want to kind of um, mollify their guilt, but we wanna help them to understand that they feel guilty to, to talk about and process their feelings. And then maybe there's some way we wanna help them to do some kind of um, reconciliation, well, if they kill someone, not reconciliation, reparations or um, giving back or trying to make some kind of positive impact, um, you know, like, I don't know, working with other people that have been victims or, or who might be using substances or something like that. Um, so we need to really kind of work through what they feel that they have done and, and 
help them to deal with um, guilt. I, I don't know whether you say real and un. I don't think you'd say real and unreal guilt. You'd say um, guilt that comes from actions that were irresponsible versus guilt that comes from actions that the person really didn't have responsibility for, which of course there's some judgment in that. Another reason people may get stuck in guilt is they are kind of wishing they could have been in control of the loss so that if they feel guilty that someone died of a heart attack and they think, uh, I'm gonna go into an example in a few minutes, um, they could have saved the person if they had just gotten the, per the, the, the husband to a doctor. They may be wishing they could have avoided the loss even though the person's heart was giving out. Um, it may be like if they give up, let go of the guilt, it means they realize how helpless they were in the situation. And that can feel really bad to feel like we don't have control. <laughs> um, the guilt may be a way to stay connected to the, the deceased or the loss. So it may be helping the person learn to live without the deceased, help them to feel and learn to tolerate the pain of being left alone, um, maybe what they need to get over through the guilt. And sometimes guilt is related to other underlying unexpressed feelings. So sometimes a person feels guilt when the guilt is actually fueled by underlying anger that has not been expressed and that Expressing the anger feels more challenging, more scary, more frightening. And so um, they, they're more uh, comfortable feeling guilt than feeling anger. Those are just some of the possibilities. Um, so one of the approaches that I have been using with intractable grief is trying so this would be separate from bullet number two. If it was bullet number two, I think we really need to talk about what they did, how they feel guilty, um, what they wish they would have done, but also what led up to it. But in other situations, I think this can be applied. So I'm calling this multiple contributing factors. So any one thing that happens, it's not caused by just one action, but when someone feels guilty, they often feel like, well, it's my fault because I did this, or it's my fault because I didn't do that. And really anything that happens, I'm pretty sure this is true across the board, happened because of many different contributing factors, not just one. So here's a sort of silly example before I get to talking about a client, um, but just to illustrate the idea of multiple contributing factors. Um, let's just say I was late to work. Uh, and I could say, well, I was late to work because my alarm didn't go off. But really, I was late to work because my alarm didn't go off. And then when I went to start the car, the gas was low. And it was low because yesterday when I was going to fill up with gas, my child was in the backseat crying. And I decided not to stop and get gas on the way home. So I went home as quickly as possible. And then when I left, got ready to leave for work this morning, the, there was low on gas and I wasn't gonna make it. So I had to stop at the gas station, et cetera, et cetera. 
and why was my child crying? My child was crying because he had a fever and, and on and on. There's the factors are multiple. So that's kind of obvious. Um, so I could blame myself for being late or I could think about all the other factors. Well, I slept past my alarm. I didn't sleep well last night. My child was sick. I had to go to the drugstore for medications. Uh, my child caught cold from other children. Other children were sick. The car was all, all, all like that. So it's not just my fault. <laughs> um, I contributed somehow, but it, there's like, you know, eight different reasons, plus there's more about why I was late for work. So the example here I have done with clients, um, either having them take out a piece of paper and write these things down, or actually, I think it's probably better to have a piece of paper or not paper, but you could do this if you're doing telehealth. Yeah, I haven't actually learned during health, telehealth how to have a something to write on between the two of us. There must be a way though, um, depending on what platform you're using. But anyway, to have them, have you, you and the client together write down, what is it that they blame themselves for? What, what aspect of the loss are they blaming themselves for? And then have them write down what they think they did that caused the loss. And that's where we talk, you know, we, we sit there for a while and talk about it and talk about their feelings. And then helping them to think about what else contributed. Asking them to include like what led up to the occurrence of each part. What else caused the person who died or whatever the loss might be, to be in the situation they were in. If you're doing a group grief counseling, you might have the other group members suggest what were some of the other contributing factors. But again, I think it's really important to try to help the client to generate these. I think we could also make some suggestions, but I think it will be more powerful if the client generates them. So here's, here's my example. I had a client who was feeling so guilty and just, I, we did a, quite a bit of grief therapy. Her husband had died. And um, I, I just was sort of having trouble figuring out what was sticking her with the grief. And I did it at, at, for somewhat think it had to do with the fact that she was actually angry at him, um, but she was just not willing to express anger at him. Uh, for a variety of things, but actually after we did this exercise, she was. So she kept saying that he, he had died of a heart attack um, and he was not a very old man. He was, I think just about 60, not, not, not very old. So she felt guilty that she caused his death. She kept saying, I caused him to die. And what she kept saying is, I made him lie down when he was trying to get up. And, you know, for a while, I didn't really understand what that meant. Um, but it, I think it'll come out in the way I, I describe this example. So the husband had had a condition, a diagnosis of congestive heart failure. Um, so these were some of the things that over time, and this, we did this over several sessions, um, writing down the other factors. 
Well, he did have congestive heart failure. Had he been going to his doctor's appointments? Well, no, he had failed to go to um, the previous couple of doctor's appointments. Um, so he hadn't been going for regular doctor appointments to catch his illness earlier. And um, had he gotten any treatment? Well, he had been to the emergency room a few weeks earlier or about a week earlier and the ER doctor sent him home, did not admit him. So the ER doctor just about a few days before, a week before, hadn't noticed signs of worsening congestive heart failure. Um, on the day that he was having heart pain, chest pain, the client had started to call 911 earlier in the day and the husband had said, don't call 911, I don't want you to call 911. So she had thought of calling 911 several hours sooner, but he had said, no, don't. Um, then he got worse and she finally did call 911, even though he didn't want her to, um, two hours later. And then when the paramedics were on their way, the 911 dispatcher had told the client to have the husband lie down. I'm not sure what the medical reason is. She explained it to me, but he was supposed to lie down. Um, and then, so she, she was following what the dispatcher was telling her to do. And so she was pulling him to lie down and he had difficulty breathing. Um, and then because he had difficulty breathing when the um, paramedics got there, it was actually kind of a gruesome death, but they did do some um, CPR and he started just throwing up blood and it became a very, very bloody scene. And it was pretty, pretty awful. Um, and so enlisting all these, it, it becomes clear that the husband hadn't been taking care of his health. The ER doctor probably missed some signs. Um, the husband didn't want her to call 911. And the 911 dispatcher may or may not have been giving good advice. She was following the dis paramedic dispatcher's advice. Um, and you know, he had a serious medical illness. So seeing these, and this is just some of the things we wrote down, helped her to see that it wasn't just um, the fact that she was making him lie down that led to his death. And so that really helped her kind of like realize she, you know, she played a role. Um, she may have wished that she had followed through with calling 911 earlier in the day, even though her husband said no, 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 because she could have. Um, but it was one or two factors amidst a whole bunch of other factors. Getting myself out of that, I'm remembering working with that client and it was, um, it was, it was pretty sad and pretty harsh. Um, but anyway, it, it was really helpful. So here are a few other possible interventions. Um, asking the client to write a letter of apology to the deceased and having them express what they're sorry for, what they wish they had done differently can really help them to sort of express themselves and their guilt. And um, 
it could be helpful here to have them also write what they or or speak what they think the other person would say to them when they apologized. That often ends up with them saying, well, he would say, it wasn't your fault, it's okay. Sometimes the person doesn't feel that way. And so that's not always as easy to work through. So, but usually it is, often it is. Another technique I think that can be helpful is, are they actually feeling guilty or is it more regret? And I think it's really important to try to distinguish between those two things. But I think people often will say, I feel guilty, I feel guilty, I feel guilty. When what it really is, is regret, which regret is sadness that that happened. Um, so for example, um, if, a, if a client says, my, my dad didn't want to have heroic measures done. Um, and then, so when I was with him, when he died, and the doctor offered to give him some extra medicine. I said, no, because I knew my dad didn't want to have his life prolonged. And then the next day, my mom was sad that he had died and, and my mom, what, the mom wasn't there. And so there's regret, but not guilt. Like the person didn't do anything wrong or bad, but they're sorry that, that if things happened that way. And I think tolerating regret can feel easier than tolerate working through the regret can not be quite as hard as working through the guilt. This is one of the books that I mentioned, Robert Niemeyer, um, with a lot of different techniques, lots of different techniques. I think we've kind of gone over most of these points. The second point um, where I talked about just recently, sometimes the reason a person gets stuck in guilt is because of their developmental history. So there's the, I think it's important that we go back and forth between talking about the story of the loss event and the backstory of the attachment relationship of the grieving person with what was lost. So we're kind of going back and forth between talking about the grief about this one specific thing and then talking about the backstory of the relationship between the person and the thing over a long period of time as well as the back backstory really of the grieving person's developmental history. Having the client tell the story with increasing detail and increasing congruent emotion. We've talked about that quite a bit already. Trying to evaluate whether there are other unexpressed emotions. So going back to my um, story about this client, really this part of what this led to is her expressing anger at the husband for not taking care of his health and not really making arrangements for when he would die. Um, and so getting to some of the unexpressed anger was also helpful. Consider asking the client, is it okay for you to be okay? Would it be okay for you to be okay? <laughs> what might happen if you were okay and not carrying the guilt? So they're kind of exploring, eh, what are they afraid of if they stopped feeling the guilt or the sadness or the loss? Maybe they would feel disloyal. Maybe they feel scared, um, et cetera. Yeah, I think we might've addressed this in an earlier session, but when a client has multiple losses, which many of our clients, most of our clients have multiple losses and multiple traumas, which do you try to help them talk about first? 
I think really we have to follow their lead, letting them choose which loss they want to talk about at any particular time and being patient with needing to go over many losses um, and not necessarily pushing talking about all the losses, um, just processing what, really following their lead about what they want to process. This last bullet point refers to if you have the person in group therapy. I think we've talked about complicated griefing. I did want to just mention a few resources about grief support groups and also processing our own losses. So um, this is a, a really wonderful set of books on grief support groups. And there's a series of three books. Uh, yeah, three books. Understanding Your Grief Group Guide, Understanding the Grief, a workbook, that you can get for your clients and a journal that they can write in. So there's this book that you know describes how to run a grief support group, a bereavement support group. And then it has a workbook for clients and a journal for clients, which I think as a, as a group, it's really a nice, actually you could use them for individual therapy too, the workbook. Um, but for grief, Wolf felt talks about I think this is 12 sessions. And he in, in the book, he talks about um, kind of structuring a grief support group for this many sessions, going over these topics. So if you want to do a group, or even you could use this as an outline for individual, although with individual therapy, you're not going to be moving people through um, step by step. So maybe not so much, but yeah, there's that. And then I, I kind of just want to mention the importance of self-care, vicarious trauma, vicarious grief. We need to really um, find time and various strategies that work for us to take care of ourselves. One of the things we do at our clinic is have a memorial service for clients who have died. We do that once a year. I tend to try to think about it on um, the Day of the Dead or Halloween or All Souls Day, All Saints Day, that kind of October 31st, November 1st, just it's a reminder to me as a time to, for us to remember clients who have died. Um, and this is a little, you, you can use this if you want, it's just a little order of service that you can go through um, in a meeting, you know, a staff meeting, a treatment team meeting, where you could have a reading of some sort reading the list of the deceased clients, pausing after each name for each for, for staff to kind of just mention what, what do they remember about the person? What do they think about? What, what comes to mind? Funny examples, touching examples. Um, one could light some candles, um, having a moment of silence and having another reading. So this is a little order. And one of our staff, Solani, wrote this poem, and I want to just read it. And I, it, and she gave me permission to share this, so I think that means she would give you permission to use it or adapt it for your for your own uses. Um, but I, I find it very touching. You came to Heritage for some clarity, or maybe you had some uncertainty. The journey you took may have not been easy, but step by step, you slowly grow mentally. 
You shared your inner secrets with your clinician, case manager, psychiatrist, and even our front office staff, which helped to ease your pain. Therefore, God used all of them to help you trust again. Thank you for allowing us to walk alongside you during your healing journey. We laughed, we cried, we were mad, we processed some heavy issues, but you did it. As you transitioned, we mourned your loss. We will never forget you. You came to us for help, but it was your presence that has touched our hearts forever. You are not forgotten. Um, and I, I just find that is something to remember when our clients, when we're dealing with our clients who have, who have passed away. Well, um, I appreciate all of your attention. Well, thanks for joining and I hope you all have the rest of a good Wednesday.